Well, I hope you're glad to be in church this morning. It's a great blessing and privilege to know the Lord and be a part of the Lord's work. Psalm 41. Well, whether you know it or not, we have come in Psalm 41 to the last psalm in the first book. There are five books in the book of Psalms. Did you know that? I bet you didn't. Some of you may not have even known that. But uh, there are five books in the Psalter, and this is the end of the first book in the book of Psalms. The first book of Psalms, obviously, is Psalm 1 through 41. The second book is 42 through 72. The third book is 73 through 89. The fourth book is Psalms 90 through 106. And the final and fifth book is Psalms 107 through 150. I want to draw your attention to the way in which the last psalm ended. Notice Psalm 40 and verse 17 the psalmist said, As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. But I also want you to notice the way in which the first verse of Psalm 41 opens up. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. So the final thought that we're left with is in the 40th Psalm is that David says that he's poor and needy. But then you pick up that same thought beginning in the first verse of Psalm number 41. And this is important, very important, because it shows a connection between Psalms 40 and Psalm 41. And this leads us to the two great themes of Psalm 41. Those two themes are blessing and mercy. Notice that the word blessed occurs no less than three times. Verse 1, blessed is the one who considers the poor. In verse number 2, he said the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. Also, notice verse 13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. You have three occurrences of the word blessed. But then also notice in verse 4, he said, As for me, I said, O Lord, be merciful or gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. But then, and notice as well in verse number 10, he said, But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. We're not given an exact historical account of the occasion for David writing Psalm 41. But what's clear from the inward witness of the psalm itself is that David wrote Psalm 41 while he was in a very low ebb in his life. This is a low ebb psalm. Psalm 41 is connected to Psalm 6 and Psalm 38. Even though Psalm 41 was written by David, the great king of Israel, during a very low point, a low ebb in his life, very often we can relate to God teaching us new and precious truths about himself 
during low ebbs in our own lives. Very often, it's in low points where God is the most at work teaching us about himself, about who he is, and about what he's like and what he does in the world. It's during times of great trial that God reveals himself to us very often in new and profound ways. In the 40th, 41st Psalm, David says, he said, I am weak, I am sick. I've been slandered by my enemies and surrounded by false friends. I've been betrayed by one of my closest friends whom I loved and whom I trusted. Now, I don't know about you, but as bad of a day that you might be having, I don't know that you could say that you were weak, sick, slandered by your enemies, surrounded by false friends, and betrayed by one that had been closest to you. What this teaches us is that if we are experiencing any one or all of the above of those things, then what Psalm 41 is, is it is for us. In the midst of all that David has going on, notice verse number four. He said, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious or merciful to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. It wasn't just that he was sick, that he was tired, that he was weak, that he had been betrayed, that he'd been stabbed in the back. He had two-faced friends. It wasn't just that, but it was that he was also keenly aware that he himself was a sinner and not without guilt before God and man and yet in the midst of all this in the midst of sin in the midst of confession in the midst of sickness weakness betrayal in the midst of two-faced friends and backstabbing enemies we have one of the most powerful and profound texts found in all the Old Testament on the subjects of blessing and mercy. Matter of fact, Jesus Christ references and quotes from Psalm number 41, no less than twice in Matthew's gospel. He alludes to it and he quotes directly from it. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7, the Lord Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount, one of the Beatitudes is, Blessed are the merciful. Why, Lord? For they shall obtain Mercy, And then later on in Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 36, Christ opens up, Christ unpacks this idea of blessing and mercy all the more when he said, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. You say, what is mercy? Jesus Christ defines mercy in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7 and Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34 through 36. Let us come this morning as poor and needy sinners seeking to receive mercy so that we may give mercy to our fellow human being, thus being blessed by God and being a blessing to others. I'll say that again. Let us come this morning as poor and needy sinners seeking to receive mercy so that we may give mercy to our fellow human being, thus being blessed and being a blessing to those around us. 
This great poem, Psalm 41, is rich in truth regarding mercy and blessing. As we study this passage, pray that God will open your heart fully to its precious message. I have several points this morning. Roman numeral number one, blessed are the merciful. Roman numeral number two, a prayer for mercy. Roman numeral number three, the results of mercy and blessing. And Roman numeral number four, the conclusion, amen and amen. Now, I don't know how far I'm going to get. I'll do my best. I'll have you out of here sometime before four o'clock. I'm just being silly. Number one, blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, so says the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a twofold blessing and mercy given to us in Psalm number 41. Firstly, David said, we need to show compassion or mercy to the weak. That's us being a blessing. But then he says, we need to come to God for mercy for it to be bestowed upon us because we, our own selves, are weak and poor and need the mercy of God. So the mercy and blessing of God is twofold. It's both Godward, it's what we receive from God, and it's manward, it's what we are to be giving to our fellow human being. We are to be being blessed with the mercy of God ourselves, and because we have been blessed with God's mercy, we are to be blessing others with God's mercy and compassion. We give and receive God's mercy and blessings in Psalm number 41. Now, one of the things that you're going to see taking place in the 41st Psalm is this. David is upset with his enemies because they are not being merciful to him. And earlier in Psalm 38 and also Psalm 6, David said, These same people that are behaving in an unmerciful way to him are the same people that when they were sick, when they were weak, when they were poor and needy, when they were on their deathbed, David himself bestowed mercy and blessing upon them. But when it was time for David to be staring in death's face, he had death knocking on his doorstep. He was sick. He was weak. He didn't know if he was going to go on. Those same so-called friends did not bestow the same mercy that he showed upon them. And David therefore condemns these evil friends and acquaintances of him because of their two-faced backstabbing. I know that's a strong statement, as we're going to see. That's actually what's in this great 41st Psalm. David said, be merciful to me, enemies, because when you were sick and on your deathbed, I was in fact merciful to you. Now then, if we live lives of mercy and compassion to our fellow human being, there's nothing wrong with us expecting for them to repay us in kind. But also expect to not be repaid in kind. I'll say it this way. <clears throat> Just because you yourself are merciful... And just because you yourself have shown compassion to people, 
Don't expect that to be bestowed back upon you. Matter of fact, expect the exact opposite. Because that is the way, ladies and gentlemen, people are. See, very often we labor and we do nice things and we behave toward people mercifully. And we expect that same thing back from people. But what you and I need to realize is that we live in a fallen world. And we live in a world of people who are sinners. And we, our own self, are sinners. And just because we have bestowed mercy, very often you can expect to not receive mercy. Some of the most merciful people and some of the most compassionate people who have ever lived have been treated mercilessly by the world. See the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry. Here you have a man who gives his entire life... Uh, doing good works for people, healing the sick, making the blind see, uh, straightening out withered arms, resurrecting the dead. And what does the world do to him? They crucify him on a Roman cross. They accuse him falsely and they try him in an unfair trial. Just because we have exemplified mercy to people, we should not expect to be repaid back in kind. David is upset though. It's okay to be upset that you aren't being repaid what you deserve. If you've behaved mercifully to people and you've made it your life's goal and ambition to try to be kind and compassionate, yes, that's a wonderful thing, but don't always expect that to be repaid back to you the way that you have given it. Now then, here's one of the most powerful teachings of this psalm. We have no right to ask God to bless us and be merciful to us if we have not been blessing others with mercy. I'll say that again. We have no right to expect God to give mercy to us in our neediest moments if we have not been giving mercy to others in their needy moments. Someone would say, well, how in the world do I have a shot in the dark, a ghost of a chance to even be able to be merciful to anybody? I don't know how to do that. Well, you know a God who is infinitely merciful and you can show mercy to people by being in fellowship with the God of mercy. Because God has acted toward us in blessing and mercy, we in fact should be acting toward our fellow human being in mercy and blessing. We receive the greatest mercy from God, the greatest compassion from God, when we are exercising the same to our fellow human being here below. When we are blessing others with mercy, God blesses us with mercy. Let me show you. There are at least seven blessings in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 41. Let's look at them. Seven blessings we receive from God when we come to Him as poor and needy sinners. He said the Lord will deliver him in times of trouble, protect him, preserve his life, bless him in the end, not surrender him to the desires of his foes, sustain him on his sickbed, and restore him to good health. How can we ever expect to be blessed with mercy from God if that's not how we are behaving to our fellow human being? 
If you are unmerciful and merciless, you can expect no mercy and no compassion from God. And because you have received mercy and compassion from God and blessing, then therefore we are to be blessing others with the same. Some of us say, well, how can I extend mercy? Get in fellowship and communion and union with the God of mercy. When you know the God of mercy, you will in fact be merciful. And in these passages, verses 1 through 3, I want you to also notice something. Notice the personal care and interest that God gives to his people. It's not just a general sort of care and concern that God gives. It's very specific. When we are sick, David said, God personally comforts us. When we are discouraged, God personally lifts us up. When we are not sure what decision to make, God gives us clear guidance. And in this, we have a something of a definition of what it means to be merciful and compassionate to people. When we see someone hurting, when we see someone going through a tough time, when we see someone at the bottom of the barrel, when we see someone laying flat on their back, the idea is, is that we extend a helping hand in mercy and compassion and love. Who are you being merciful to this week? Who are you extending the gift of mercy? Did you know that gift, that mercy is a gift? Romans chapter 12, Paul outlines all the spiritual gifts and mercy is in fact one of them. Mercy, meeting people in their suffering, meeting people in their greatest time of need, caring for them, exemplifying compassion and love and kindness. A plea for mercy. Now this is going to be where the sermon heats up slightly. So just be ready for this in verses 4 through 10. Notice verse 4. He said, As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. This is a plea for mercy. He said, Lord, be gracious and merciful to me. Now, just because you have given the gift of mercy to others, just because you have cared for someone in their sickness and their weakness, and just because you have sought to lift someone up when they had fallen down, that doesn't mean that you have any right to expect God to be merciful to you. This is a works-based system now if you're not careful. Mercy and grace, by their very definition, are essentially undeserved. Think about that. None of us as sinners that live in a fallen world, none of us, the lawbreakers, uh, the marred image of God, the rebellious nature that you and I have as sinners fallen from God's grace, none of us have the right to expect God to deal with us in mercy and grace. All we can do is fall on our face before him, humble ourselves in the dust, confess our sin like David does in verse 4, and ask God to bestow, according to his unmerited favor and grace, his mercy upon us. And David keeps this in the forefront of his mind right before he's going to take his enemies to the woodshed. David's going to call it like it is. David is going to say what needs to be said. He's not going to pull any punches. He's not going to sugarcoat it. 
He's going to call his enemies what they are in these verses 5 through 10. Let's look at them. Verse 5, he said, My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words. While his heart gathers iniquity, when he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. You see what's happening here? David's telling you what his enemies were doing to him in his neediest, weakest, sickest moments. And this is very often when our great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil attack us the most. We've seen this theme before. There's nothing that will cause you to doubt the love and compassion and grace and mercy of God more than a sick trial. More than physical, emotional, and spiritual weakness. When you're physically weak, when you find yourself uh, sick on a deathbed or sick with an incurable disease or an undie, you go to the doctor and they can't tell you what's wrong, but you keep feeling bad and you keep feeling bad and you keep feeling worse. Nothing will try your spiritual life. Nothing will test you spiritually more than a trial like that one. And very often, this is when our greatest enemies manifest themselves. Very often, you find out who really cares about you. Now, I want to show you something. David has a lot of enemies. You know, he talks about them a lot. He was a God-centered, God-fearing politician, a statesman, a leader of an entire nation of people at the time. Several million people looked at David for leadership. They were a very powerful military force in the ancient Near East. He had a lot of enemies. Saul, the first king of Israel, sought to kill him many times. Absalom, his own son, rebelled against him, tried to overthrow him. Why did David have so many enemies other than the fact that he tried to worship and serve the Lord? I think that in both instances, with Saul and Absalom, the Bible makes it clear, it goes out of its way to suggest that they were jealous of him. Nothing will cause another human being to act mercilessly toward another human being than jealousy. If you and I are harboring jealousy towards someone in our heart, it's hindering our mercy and our ministry of compassion and love to them. It doesn't matter what you're jealous about or jealous for. Jealousy in the instance of both Saul and Absalom is deadly. Jealousy ultimately caused both of these men to fall from good favor with David the king to try to commit murder. Absalom and Saul both were murderers. They were uh, scoundrels of the highest order. David was Absalom's father. His own son rebels against him, tries to overthrow him because he's jealous of his dad. And David was a very gifted man. The more gifted someone is, the more people will be jealous of them. 
Just ask anybody that's gifted that's ever had anybody lash out in jealous anger against them. And here is why jealousy is so evil. Because it causes us to behave in an unmerciful way to our fellow human being. When we're jealous of them, we want what they have. Jealousy essentially is a form of covetousness and it breaks the law of God. Be very careful with jealousy. People speak evil things about other people because of their deadly jealousy. They hope to ruin the reputation of others and steal it for themselves. That's what this is all about. Jealousy keeps us from extending mercy and therefore hinders us from being a blessing and being, a, and being blessed by God himself. Be very careful with jealousy. It's deadly. It's sinful. It keeps you from your ministry of mercy to others. Notice in verse 6, they were jealous enemies in verse 5. But in verse 6, and when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. Not only are they jealous enemies in verse 5, but in verse 6, they're two-faced enemies. They're hypocritical enemies. Oh, David, we hope that you get well. King, sire, your honor, your majesty. Oh, David, we love you. And then when they walked away, when they walked out of the room, when they were away from David, they said something completely different than that. These are two-faced enemies. Nothing will cause you to act mercilessly and unmerciful to another human being more than being two-faced to them. It's hypocrisy. It's ugly. It does not honor God. It needs to be repented of. That's why David begins this dialogue about his enemies with a confession of his own sin. He's saying, Lord, don't let me be like this. They said one thing to David's face, but then they spoke evil about him behind his back. Two-faced enemies, hypocritical enemies. Be very, very careful with being two-faced. Because it, what does it mean to be two-faced to your fellow brother and sister in Christ? It means to be the enemy of God. That's not how God is. God doesn't say, oh, brother, we love you, we pray for you, and then when you walk away. This is not, uh, you know, discussing you know, something maybe that's going on in someone's life. This is evil, malicious talk. They were two-faced enemies. But they weren't just that in verses 7 and 8. Look at it. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. They were condemning enemies. They're jealous enemies. They're two-faced enemies. They're condemning enemies. In David's most needy moment, this phrase in the Hebrew Bible, and they say, quote, a deadly thing is poured out on me. Literally, it could be translated, a thing of Belial, capital B. There's a demonic spirit, they say. David has been tormented by God. He's done something sinful. Demons are tormenting David. That's why he's sick. Nothing will condemn us and hurt us more than when someone speaks evil of us while we are in our neediest, weakest, sickest moments. 
This is condemning. Be very careful with suggesting that someone is sick because of something that they, some sin that they have committed. At the very beginning of this, David confesses his sin. So if someone has confessed their sin to God, God has forgiven them of it, right? At least that's what my Bible says. I don't know about yours. He that confesses his sin shall obtain mercy. And that is true, isn't it? David begins this great dialogue with the confession of his sin. Well, what sin does he have? He doesn't have any. But yet they're saying that he's got an evil spirit, a thing of Belial, Belial, tormenting him. David must have done something evil. One of the most dangerous things that I have encountered in my Christian experience is that when one Christian is suffering, you may not have a clue why that person's going through what they're going through. Folks, be very careful with accusing and condemning people when they're sick, when they're needy, when they're very, very weak. Sickness and suffering come to God's people for a myriad of reasons. Number one, suffering is the nature of humanity. If you're a human being and you live here on the terra firma, which I think everyone in here does at this point, you will suffer because that's just what happens to us. We suffer loss. We suffer hardship. We suffer illness. We suffer uh, defeats. Job 5 and verse 7, man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upwards. You will have trouble. You're born into trouble, Job says. Secondly, suffering develops Christian character in us. Look at Romans 5 and verse 3. Don't turn there, but just hear it. Suffering, Paul says, produces perseverance. Suffering produces perseverance. If you've never suffered, you probably won't persevere. Suffering produces the character of Christ in us. If our author and finisher of our faith was the greatest sufferer who ever lived, what does that suggest about those who follow on in his footsteps? If Christ suffered, what makes you think that we're any better than he is? He was the holiest, most righteous, sinless man that's ever lived. And yet he suffered. You can expect to suffer. Be very careful with thinking someone, with making someone think they are suffering because God is punishing them. That's the opposite of mercy. Even if they have done something to merit the suffering, that's not your place to tell them that very often. Very often. For every one time you say that, it should be acting in mercy and compassion and grace to someone ten times. They're jealous enemies. They're two-faced enemies. They're condemning enemies. But notice in verse number nine, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. What are they? They're backstabbing enemies. Nothing hurts more than a, than a knife in the back, especially by someone that you loved. I was a uh, member of North Love Baptist Church, and uh, we had the Reformers Unanimous Recovery Ministry. 
And I'm not going to all the details, but this is a very large church. Probably, I don't know how many people were here this morning, but about 12 to 15 times larger than our church. They had two Sunday morning services, and uh, about 1,200 people would show up on Sunday morning to go to church. And they took the offering one morning. And one of the students from the addictions recovery ministry took it upon himself to steal the Sunday morning offering from the church. The man was a recovering addict. He had come to the church and to the ministry to find help for his, uh, for his habit, for his problem. And the church had bestowed mercy and love and compassion on this man, give him a place to stay, give him a job, give him some hope, taught him the Bible. And lo and behold, one Sunday morning, he walks off with the Sunday morning offering. Now, you just do the math for a church in the city. And for a large church, the kind of offering that that would have been, you're talking thousands and thousands of dollars. And this man went off and bought whatever it was that he wanted to buy, heroin or cocaine. I don't know what it was, but something horrible like that. And that hurt. Most certainly it hurt. And this student had stabbed the church in the back. But after a little while, the man came to his senses. And he came back to the church and he said, I'm sorry, I repent, please forgive me. Will you help me again? And the church said, yes, we'll help you again. Just because someone knifes you in the back, that doesn't mean that you give up on mercy and compassion for them. There may be a time where God says no more. But the idea is to be in such close fellowship with God that you know when that time is. And it's not you and your flesh making the decision and saying no more, they're our enemy forever. But that God himself reigns in your heart and that you seek to repay evil with good, as Paul says. Probably the best illustration that I could think of or I could find in the life of David of him getting knifed in the back by one of his friends is found. You don't have to, just if you want to write the reference down, that's fine. It's 2 Samuel 16, verses 15 through chapter 17 and verse 53. It's a rather large portion, but it, it uh, dialogues the betrayal of David's close friend and counselor, Ahithophel. Ahithophel betrayed David whenever Absalom rose up and rebelled against his father. This man took sides with David's son and uh, formed a mutiny, a rebellion. This was such a traumatic experience that David, I think, is alluding to that in this great psalm. But someone else has this ninth verse in his mind. Someone else quotes from Psalm 41 and verse number 9. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 13 and verse 18, Jesus quotes from Psalm 41 and he says that Judas is the betrayer. No one knew more what it was like to get a knife in the back than the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the night of his betrayal, 
when Judas Iscariot comes, Jesus Christ looks at him and he says, Wherefore have you come, friend? Wherefore have you come, friend? And this tells us something about the nature of Christ, doesn't it? And here you have the moment that Jesus picked Judas Iscariot to be his follower. The Bible says that he already knew that Judas was going to betray him, and yet he picked him anyway. And for all those three and a half years, Jesus relates to Judas in love and compassion and mercy. Judas sees all that Jesus does. Judas is a part of Christ's ministry. Judas is one of Christ's closest confidants. And he stabs him in the back in his neediest moments. This is horrifying. But in the garden of Gethsemane, when Judas comes to betray him, Christ calls him friend. What does this mean? Well, I think Jesus is being slightly tongue-in-cheek. Wherefore have you come, friend? You've seen me all these years. You've said that you loved me. You said that you wanted to follow me. You said that you're my friend, but here you are to knife me in the back in my most neediest moments. In the midst of betrayal, in the midst of two-faced hypocrisy, what does David do in verse number 10? He says, but you, Lord, you're not like them. <laughs> you're not like them at all, Lord. He says, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. There are seven results of a life of blessing and mercy. This is important. There were seven blessings in the first three verses, but in these verses, verses 10 through 12, you have seven more. And what does it mean when we bestow mercy and compassion? Well, we're doubly blessed. It's not just seven blessings, it's seven more. <laughs> when you show mercy to your fellow human being in the midst of being betrayed, in the midst of being knifed in the back, in the midst of having someone speak hypocritically against you, when you still exercise mercy and compassion toward them, you are doubly blessed. God says it's not just seven blessings, here's seven more, David. You're doing it not for them. You don't do it for them because they deserve it. You do it for the Lord. Look at it. Verse 10, he says, But you, O Lord, be gracious to me, number one, and raise me up, number two, that I may repay them, number three. Number four, he says, But this I know that you delight in me. He said, Then my enemy will not shout and triumph over me, but you upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Seven more blessings. And the last one is an eternal blessing. Truly, Jesus was right when he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. How much mercy? Double manifold mercy from God. In conclusion, notice verse 13. I've kept you a little longer this morning. I couldn't help myself. It's the last of the, this 40, 41st Psalm is the last of our study of the first book. Just bear with me. This great psalm ends with a crescendo of praise. 
Books 1 and 2 and 3 all end with this same phrase, Amen and Amen. Book 4 ends with, Let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And book 5 of the Psalter ends with a double hallelujah, praise the Lord, twofold. What a fitting finale to the first book of Psalms. In Psalm 1, it showed us the faithful root themselves in Scripture. Psalm 2 reveals the victory of David and the final victory of David's greater son, Jesus the Messiah. Psalms 3 and 4 teach us to meditate on God and His Word morning and evening. Psalm 6 and Psalm 32 tell us that God is willing and able to forgive sin and sinners. Psalm 7 reveals God's justice. Psalm 8 reveals His mercy and majesty. Psalms 9, 20, 24, 35, and 40 all speak of God's deliverance from enemies and the preservation of God's people in the midst of their trouble. Psalm 14 exposes the most foolish person in all the world. Psalm 22 shows us how to suffer victoriously. Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 are the shepherd psalms. In there I find that Jesus is my good shepherd, my great shepherd, and my chief shepherd. Psalm 27 says that God God is our light and our salvation. Psalm 28 tells us about the kind of prayer which God answers. Psalm 29 reveals God's glory. Psalm 30 gives us the God of joy. Psalm 31 tells us that God is our refuge. Psalm 37 affirms that we can rest secure in God no matter our circumstances. Psalms 38 and 41 show us that God is our help in sickness and therefore we end the first book of the Psalter with blessing. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting and everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a fitting finale to a precious, precious piece of your word. And Lord, as much as we have tried to dive into the book of Psalms, and done our very best to bring up and bring out golden nuggets of truth and to show the connections being made between the Psalms and between the New Testament and the Old Testament, how your son, the Lord Jesus, found great solace and great strength in the book of Psalms and how Paul and the apostles also quote from this wonderful book, Lord, we've really only scratched the surface. And there's so much more. So much more that these great psalms have to offer. I pray, dear God, that the studies that we've done here at the Baptist Christian Church have only whetted the appetite of the people here. That they would, in fact, as the Lord Jesus says in the same beatitude, that they would hunger and that they would thirst after righteousness. As the musicians will come, and just for a moment, they will play a brief song Everyone still meditating and reflecting on what you just heard. Someone may say, Brother Joel, pray for me that I will come to know what it means to be blessed and be a blessing to, to obtain mercy and to give mercy to others. Someone, anyone at all, somebody say, pray for me. I know I've got my hand raised. Anyone at all, God bless you. Oh, folks, the Word of God is a wonderful thing. And cry out to the God 
of joy and the God of mercy, call to him and he'll make you what he wants you to be.